Good morning, River Rock Bible Church. How are you doing this morning? Man, it is great to be back in Texas. Uh, Stephen, myself, and Jeff Brown had the chance to travel on to uh, Nashville, Tennessee this last week and continue learning more about becoming a disciple-making church and what that looks like. And it was a great time. At, uh, it was uh, called Disciple Shift Conference. And I uh, just want to thank you guys for your support, your prayers for us as we traveled there. But man, it is good to be back in Texas where barbecue does not mean pork. It means beef. All right? So uh, if, you, if you go to Tennessee, you go to Nashville, uh, you could probably skip the barbecue. Just go to Loveless Cafe and get some pie. All right? Just take my word for it. And catfish. They probably, uh, that looks pretty good there. Uh, Well, it is good to be back here with you this morning. Uh, We've taken a break from our series. This last year, we've had a big theme called By Faith. And we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, which is the Hall of Heroes of Faith. Been making our way through that, and we're coming up on a new series. We're actually going to go a little bit out of order on things, because you'll see there are some names mentioned before the two guys that we're going to get to. But we're going to start, over the next couple weeks, take a brief look at two men uh, first and second Samuel contain the story of Samuel and Saul and David, but we're going to look at Samuel and David. And this is, uh, these two books are probably two of my favorite books in all of the Old Testament. Uh, I just, I, I remember as a teenager, I fell in love with these stories. And so that's where we're going to be. We're going to be back in Hebrews 11. We're talking about fighting by faith. And the reality is that in life, we will fight many, many battles. We will fight many battles, and sometimes we find ourselves fighting the same battle over and over and over again. And too often, the sad reality is that rather than coming out of battle as a seasoned veteran, a seasoned soldier prepared for the next battle, we come out as a weary warrior with little energy or desire to face the enemy again. But this morning, we're going to look at, at Samuel and we're going to see a man who, who's going to give us some insight on how we can fight these battles. The battle that Samuel fought, he, we're going to see that Samuel's battle is not that much different than ours. Although he had a, a visible physical enemy that he was battling, it was also a very real spiritual battle that Samuel was fighting that I think is even more important than the physical battle that we're going to read about in 1 Samuel 7. If you want to know a little bit more about spiritual warfare, I really encourage you to go to Ephesians chapter 6. There's a great passage there in Ephesians 6 on putting on the armor of God. And one of the things that we see after Paul has talked about putting on the armor of God, he tells us to pray. Because prayer is the energy, it's the power, it's the strength that enables us to wield and to wear that armor. And that's what we're going to see this morning with Samuel, is that the battle that he fights, he fights in prayer. We're going to see this in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. But before we go there, I want us to just see kind of where we're going with uh, Hebrews 11, where we are. If you want a refresher of where we've been, you can go back and read the first parts of Hebrews 11, but we're in verse 32. It says, And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about my life, and I think about the things that I'm facing, 
and I think about the struggles that I go through day in and day out, this description of, of what these men and women did is what I desire. I look at my life and I wish and I long that things could be different. And I love this description of how they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises. They gained strength after being weak. They became mighty in battle. And I hope this morning as you hear these verses, as we hear this story, that you can identify with this. Understanding that that we come in often, we're weak, we're tired from fighting. But we're going to see that we have one who fights for us. And we're going to see how we can join him in that battle. I want us to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. In 1 Samuel 7, I want to give you a little bit of background. I'm going to get you caught up on about a thousand years of history uh, in like two minutes, all right? So Egypt, uh, Israel, uh, descendants of Abraham end up going into Egypt where they're enslaved for 400 years and then God raises up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. Many of you are familiar with that story. They go to take the promised land, the land that God has promised them, but they don't go in. So they end up wandering the desert for 40 years. God gives them the Ten Commandments, which were all about their relationship with him, how they are to interact with him. It was never meant to be a set of rules by which if you could keep the rules, then you'd get to go to heaven. That was never the point. The point was, hey, here's how you're supposed to live with me. Here's how you're supposed to live with one another. So God gives them that but they misuse it. They misunderstand it. God also gives them the Ark of the Covenant, and they misunderstand that as well. One of the, you guys are probably somewhat familiar with the Ten Commandments. Who knows what the first one is? Anybody? No other gods. Second commandment, no idols. Well, it's not long before Israel has their own idols, their own false gods that they bring in, and they begin worshiping these false gods and these false idols. Eventually, they end up going in with Joshua. They, they take possession of the land, and it's not long before they're led astray by the people around them. And so they've invited in these other gods. They begin worshiping these other gods. So what does God do? He sends other nations, usually the Philistines or other people from the land of Canaan, uh, as judgment against the Israelites. And then they begin to cry out to God because they're oppressed. So they cry out to God. God listens to their cry because they're his beloved people. And he listens to their cry and he would raise up a judge at this time. Uh, A judge was someone who would kind of be like a general that would lead them into battle. But their main point was to draw them back into relationship with God. So God would raise up a judge. They would fight off the Philistines or the Amorites or the Amalekites or whoever they were facing And then they would turn back to God for a little while. But it wouldn't be long before they would start turning away to their gods again, their false gods and their idols. And so we go throughout the book of Judges with this cycle of sin, exile, meaning they're separated from God in relationship. God allows them to be conquered. Then they cry out to God and then they're restored. And then they come to this covenant renewal for a short period of time. And then they go back to sin, exile, restoration, covenant renewal, sin, exile, and they just go through this pattern. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd say that fairly well describes my life. Anybody else? That God, we're good, but uh, I kind of want to do this over here. And then all of a sudden I look up and I realize that God's presence is absent from my life as I'm walking in sin. And then I cry out to God, God, I'm sorry. Lord, I want things to change. And God says, I'm right here. I never left. 
I love you. I was just waiting for you to turn around and see me. And then things go great until I come back into sin and then I fall off the wagon. And I just keep going through that same cycle over and over again. And this is where Israel is. In fact, at the end of Judges, this is what we read. We read at the end of Judges 21, 25. This is the very last verse before we get to Samuel's time. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever he wanted. There's one verse that I think could describe our country right now. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what he wanted. The reason that verse so well describes our country is because it so well describes my life. See, God's desire was that he would be king of Israel. Yet they removed him as king, and they placed themselves as king and did whatever they wanted to do. And too often, this is where I find myself, and I'm willing to bet, if you're honest, this is where you find yourself. There's no, king in my, there's no king in Charlie, and so he does whatever he wants. And this is where we find the people at the time of Samuel. Things had degraded so badly that even the priesthood had been degraded. And you can go back and read the first part of 1 Samuel, the first six chapters. You'll read all about how the priesthood had been degraded, and now Samuel has come up. He's kind of grafted into the priesthood family. He, he wasn't uh, one of Eli, the previous priest's sons, but somehow he comes out as a good priest. And so God raises him up. He's, he's the last of the judges, and he's the first of the prophets. Uh, we know Moses was a prophet, but he's the first of this line of prophets that are now going to enter into Israel. And so he's kind of this transitional character, but I love his story. Go back and read it, especially the story of his birth. It's amazing. So we have all of these things. God's people were in a sorry state spirit, spiritually and religiously, and, in, and they long for things to change. In the story previous to this, we read about the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence in Israel has been captured by the Philistines. But then God afflicts the Philistines and ends up with the ark coming back to Israel. And it makes its way back to Israel and it sits there for 20 years. For 20 years. And then we pick up in verse 2. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are turning to the Lord with all your heart, Get rid of your foreign gods and the asteroids that are among you. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the asteroids and only worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. And they fasted that day and there they confessed We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mitzpah. So what's happening here? First thing I want us to see, we're going to get to Samuel's prayer in just a little bit, but the first thing that I want us to see is that the prayer of repentance, uh, the prayer of faith must include repentance, confession of sin, and life change. The prayer of faith must include repentance, confession of sin, and life change. Now, there's some some words that are really significant. And I want you to look at verse 2 again. If you have your Bibles, open your Bibles and look there. If you have it on your phone. In fact, why don't we do this? Hey, next Sunday, 
uh, is going to be bring your Bible to church Sunday, right? Take your Bible to church, right? So I would love to see everybody. I see a couple that have the, the real thing, man. I know we put the words on the screen, but there's, I'm old school, and there's nothing like having your own Bible right in front of you. So I want to encourage you guys, next Sunday, take your Bible to church Sunday, just like take your kid to work, all right? Uh, take your Bible to church. Um, man, so look back, verses 2. Verses 2 and following. What are some important words? He says, whole, the whole house of Israel, if... If, are you serious about this, returning all, rid yourselves, commit yourselves, serve him only. There are lessons for us to learn. We see the response of God's people, Samuel's readiness and willingness to pray for them, and their humility and confession of sin in deep desire to experience God's blessing. But something had to take place first. Something had to take place before they could just jump back into relationship with God. They had to repent. They had to repent. Now, this word repentance, most of us think it just means change your behavior, right? Stop doing what you were doing and repent. And that's not at all what the word means. The word biblically means to change your mind, right? We see that that they're changing their mind about their thoughts, behaviors, and attitudes. That's what it means to repent, We see this in the fact that Samuel calls them to return. He says, turn back. Do a 180. Come back to the Lord. Change your mind about the way you have been doing things. Because Israel never really set God outside of their lives. Israel never fully rejected God. What they wanted to do is they wanted to worship God first, but, you know, we're going to have all these other things. Or, yeah, we're going to include God in kind of our pantheon of things that we worship just in case... You know, the God of Israel doesn't work out. So Samuel calls him and he says, no, it's time for you to repent. It's time for you to change your mind and realize that God is not only first, he is only. He is the only one that you are to worship. And then he calls them to a time of confession. Now, a lot of times we think about confession and we think we're just admitting that we've done something. But let me ask you this, does, does God not know that we've sinned? Does God need us to, to tell him when we've messed up? No, he already knows. He was there. He saw it. So what is confession? Confession, then, is when we acknowledge and agree with God that our thoughts, behaviors, and attitudes are sin. We're not coming to God to to give him some information that he didn't have previously. He saw it. He was there. But we come before God and we say, God, when I yelled at my kids, that was wrong and it was a sin against you. And I acknowledge that. And I agree with you that it was wrong. So that brings us to the last part, which really these two work together to bring about that life change, to bring about that behavioral change that God desires as a result of these things. When I was growing up, uh, I was the youngest of three, and I can remember when I was about two or three, uh, something happened with my brother, and my mom told my brother, you need to go tell Charlie that you're sorry. And I'll never forget, because this became a saying and a joke through my family, it still is to this day. My brother did something hurt me, and he comes to me and he says, Charlie, I'm sorry. And at two or three years old, I looked at him and said, sorry's not good enough. (laughs) Sorry's not good enough. I want you to prove to me that you're sorry. I need to see it. And that's exactly what God is saying here. He's saying, look, hey, it's not enough to say sorry. 
Sorry, Lord. Because what happens? See, for the last 400 years, Israel has been saying, sorry, God, we kind of followed those other gods, but now we're ready to get back with you. And then what happens? They fall off the cliff again, and they keep going through that cycle. So God says, hey, sorry is not good enough. And Samuel, he uses Samuel to do it. He says, you've got to come before the Lord, and you've got to show me that you're ready for this. You've got to prove to me that you're returning. You need to make some changes. And he calls them to get rid of all the idols that they have, and they do. And I love this idea that they come and they pour out water before the Lord. What they're doing is they're symbolically saying, we're pouring out all of the sin in our life. And we're acknowledging it, and we want to get rid of it. And they follow Samuel's instructions, and they, they repent, and they confess, and they have this beautiful time of confession. And what I want us to do this morning is something a little bit different than what we normally do. See, I believe that, that every single one of us face the same problem that the people of Israel are facing in this chapter. Every single one of us has idols in our lives. We have those things that we have allowed to creep in and we've begun worshiping them in place of God, our one and only. I could, I could list a number of those. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your kids' sports. Find yourselves three out of four Sundays missing because little Johnny's got a t-ball game. Maybe it's Netflix. You realize that you spent eight hours watching a movie or TV show yesterday all weekend long and you've never once cracked open your Bible. Maybe, like the people of Israel, you've begun worshiping the things of God rather than God himself. See, the Philistines, or the Israelites, the reason they lost the ark in the first place is because they viewed the ark as God instead of what it was meant to be to represent his presence with them. And so they bring it into battle, and they lose that battle, and the ark gets captured. They had begun worshiping the things of God rather than God himself. So I want to ask you this morning, what are some of the things that you need to repent of? What are some of the idols that you've placed in your life? Is it something around you? Is it one of the things of God? Because here's the reality. I think sometimes we worship the Bible rather than God of the Bible. The God whose word it is. Because we'd rather be right than righteous. We'd rather let people know how smart we are and how much of the Bible we know than to allow the word of God to work through us and transform us. And so our Bible study becomes nothing more than a desire to know something instead of be changed into something. Sometimes we worship worship. We worship the music rather than the one that we're supposed to be singing about. And we say, well, if they don't do this song or if they don't do this style, it's too loud, it's too soft, it's not loud enough. We find ourselves worshiping the wrong things. So I want to challenge you this morning. I want us to take some time. We're just going to take some time. I'm going to leave you alone. This is going to be awkward because it's going to be silent. But I want to leave you alone with God for a period of time to think through. And I'm willing to bet that God has already put something on your heart. When I said idols, that first thing that came to your mind, that was it. And if you're having a a hard time coming up with something, I want to challenge you to walk in the bathroom And look at that nice, shiny, reflective surface. And I think quickly you'll find one as you look in the mirror. 
Because I think some of the greatest idols that we face are the idols of pride and self. Just like the people of Israel in the time of the judges, there was no king, so every man did whatever he wanted. I want to ask you for the next minute. There's space in your bulletin for you to just write. I want to give you a chance to just identify. Ask God to help you identify what those idols are. Samuel drew the people's attention to the reality that they were better off longing for the ark and God's presence than they were when they had it and they prided themselves in it and were prying it open. Samuel drew their attention to their idols, their false idols. I want to challenge you as you look at that list, the next step that Samuel leads them through is a period of confession time of acknowledging before God that what we are doing, what I have placed in your spot is wrong. So I want to give you another time. Come before the Lord. Will you let yourself be humbled and broken before him that you have allowed other things to take his place? Would you just confess that? Just now, just take some time. Silently before the Lord, would you just confess? God, I confess. Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you this morning. Father, I confess to you my own selfishness. Lord, that I put my own desires at times ahead of what you desire for me. God, that I would rather sit on the couch and watch a TV show than to get up and serve my wife as you've called me to. Lord, I acknowledge and confess my pride. But there are times that I would rather be known than to make you known. I confess, Lord, that at times I treat your your word as nothing more than a, a way to gain knowledge to impress people with trivia. Lord, I'd rather, rather be right than righteous. I'd rather amaze people with answers to questions than to allow your word to transform me. God, I confess all of these things. I agree with you that they are sin. I ask this morning, Lord, that you would give me the strength that you would empower me to make the changes necessary to let you be first. To remove everything of myself so that it's no longer me living with Jesus, but that I would be able to say that Jesus is life. It's his life, Lord, not my own. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning as they have come before you to confess their sins. We ask that you would give us a plan 
God, that you would give us a plan for repentance. That we would make the changes necessary to honor you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I know some of you are thinking, did our pastor really just pray that? You can't do that. You can't stand up here and air your dirty laundry. Well, I want to point you to James five sixteen. It tells us this. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The intense prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. And I'd ask... Uh, I'd ask that you would pray for your pastor's sick heart to be healed. Pray for me. I'm not perfect. I, I, hope, I hope I've never given that impression. Uh, but I do desire to become more like God every single day. And I want to encourage you this week, as you go throughout your week, as you go to your community groups, as you go to your small groups, discipleship groups, I encourage you, confess to one another. There are people who are wanting to bear that burden with you, to walk alongside of you, to love you through that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our desire is that we would build each other up. I want us to continue with this story briefly, quickly. We see that first, a prayer of faith includes repentance, confession of sin, and life change. I want us to pick up in verses 7 and 8. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up towards Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, so that he will save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, the next thing I want us to see is this, that uh, the prayer of faith will be challenged by doubts and fears. We saw this with Thomas and how he doubted. We know that doubt is, is always the companion of faith. It's always there as a part of the faith walk. And we see this throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. The reason the people are becoming fearful was because they looked at their enemies, their circumstances and their problems, the difficulties that they were facing in their life, and they removed their gaze from God, and they become fearful. Those of you who know your New Testament, the life of Jesus, you know that there's one point when he's walking on the water, and Peter sees him, and he says, Peter, come out with me. And Peter himself begins walking on the water. And we know that the winds blow up. And what happens? Peter gets distracted. He takes his eyes off Jesus. And then it says he began to sink. But Jesus lifts him up. We know there's another time when Jesus is with his disciples. And he's asleep at the front of the boat. And this horrible storm comes. And they think that they're going to be capsized. And that they're all going to die. And so they they finally wake Jesus up. And he calms the storm and he says, Oh, you have little faith. I don't doubt that as Moses walked through the Red Sea with a wall of water, and, a wall, wall, wall of water on the right and on the left, that somewhere in the back of his mind he's thinking, Okay, um, let's, make, let's go a little faster. <laughs> Not sure how long this is going to hold up. I'm sure as Joshua approached the city of Jericho, and he looked at those walls, and he heard from God what the plan was. As they marched around that city that seventh time before he gave the command, I'm sure in the back of his mind there was this thought of, all right, here goes nothing. Let's, let's give it a shot. There's always the, those doubts and those fears. And they typically come when we take our eyes off the Lord and we become overwhelmed by our circumstances. 
In 2012, um, God had called my wife and I to the greater Austin area to plant a church. We were serving at a church up in Dallas and had bought our first home there. Uh, we, we got a great deal on this home, but if you know anything about the housing market in 2012, it was not great. Uh, between 2008 and 2012, 4 million families were foreclosed on uh, in this country. And so we had the task of selling our home and moving to Austin so we could come and plant a church. So we prayed. And we'd seen God's provision all through this time. Uh, yet something happened that, that would cause us to doubt. You see, we'd sold our house. We listed it on a Friday. And on Saturday, I was out fishing with my, da- my dad. And I got a call from the realtor saying that um, you've got a... a offer on the house for only $2,000 less than your asking price, which was fine by me because we listed it at 15000 more than we paid for it three years before. And the house sold. So Amanda and I packed up everything. We moved with the kids into her, parent, into her dad's house here in Austin, and we were living there when I got the call on the day that the house was supposed to close. And my realtor said, the appraiser went out yesterday and saw that there was a crack in the brick from top to bottom, and they don't want to underwrite the loan until someone can come out and inspect the foundation. And what was the first thing I did? I worried. I was scared. We were already here. There was no way I could go back and work with some team to fix our foundation if there were problems. And I thought, what do I do? So I started calling my, my, my close family and friends and I was like complaining and my, my mom just said, have you prayed about it? No. <laughs> Don't you think you should? And so I did. And I began to pray and I began to pray for God's peace and I began to pray for his hand working through that situation. And I reflected back on that situation and all the times that I thought, man, how could the disciples be so stupid? Like, they're with Jesus and they're afraid. How could the people of Israel be so stupid that they just walked through the Red Sea, saw God part the Red Sea, they walked through it, two days later they're ready to go back to Egypt. And then I thought to myself, man, how could you be so stupid? You left a job, you had to raise support, you raised over $50,000 in two weeks of families who were supporting this mission. You sold your house for more than you bought it for just three years before, and you think God's going to leave you here? What happened? I got overwhelmed with my circumstances. I got overwhelmed by my situation. I took my eyes off the Lord. It happens. It happens. But the moment I put my eyes back on him, I saw the victory. I saw what God was doing. Let's continue looking at the story. Picking up in verse 9. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered. Samuel was offering the burnt, burnt offering as the Philistines draw new to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they fled before Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to the place below beth Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory. The, again, the Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. 
Something that took Samuel over, uh, excuse me, Samson over 20 years to accomplish, Samuel is able to lead the Israelites to do in a day. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. But what do we take away from this passage? We see that it's while Samuel is offering the sacrifice that the Philistines come up against him. We know that the prayer of faith will always be contested by the enemy. We know that the enemy will always contest the prayer of faith. He's always going to fight against you. Now here's the beautiful thing. We know that it was in the midst of their worship, their coming before the Lord, that the enemy comes to fight against them. We know that any time we take a step out and we start to do things for God, we start to worship God, we start to walk with God, I can guarantee you, you will be attacked spiritually by the enemy. We know this. We know this. And here's the great thing. If you know the attack is coming, what can you do? You can prepare. Yesterday. Who knows what yesterday was? April 21st. What? Columbine anniversary. Battle of San Jacinto. 1836, Sam Houston gets his army. They're outnumbered, almost two to one. And what does he do? Does he wait for a pitched battle? No. He attacks when they're not expecting it. What would have happened if they had waited for when the enemy expected it? They probably would have been overcome. But they were successful because it came when they weren't expecting it. We know when the enemy's going to attack. Battle of New Orleans. Uh, Hickory, old Hickory, Andrew Jackson knew when the British were going to attack and he was able to fight off. They were outnumbered almost three to one. And he was able to fight them off because he knew when the attack was coming. You know when the attack's coming. You should expect it always, right? Expect it always and you'll be ready. Again, I want to point you back to Ephesians chapter six. We read about putting on the full armor of God that we would be prepared. Be prepared for that battle. And then I love As he finishes out that section, he says, and pray. And pray. Prayer is the energy that allows us to wield the weapons of war against our enemy. We know it's coming. We should always be prepared for it. And the last thing I want us to see is this, is that the prayer of faith is always answered to God's glory. The prayer of faith is always answered to God's glory. We read how how as they prayed, God did what? He thundered loudly. Now, this is awesome to me because Baal, one of the false idols that the Philistines worshipped, their primary god was the god of thunder. God thunders loudly and sends them into confusion, and the Israelites defeat him. And Samuel says, hey, we're going to raise up a stone. We're going to celebrate this. We're going to put this memorial here to remind ourselves that with God's help, this was accomplished. Now, I thought about that just this morning as I was preparing. These monuments, this isn't the first time Israel has resurrected a monument. And they were designed so that as people would walk by, they would see this giant stone and they would say, hey kids, let me tell you about what God did here. We have hysterical markers here in Texas, right? Probably nobody ever stops to really look at them. There's probably that one guy in the room who does, uh, makes the trip that much longer. But they had these monuments, these giant stones that they would set up so that as they passed by, they could say, hey kids, let me tell you about the day that God thundered so loudly that the Philistines fled before us. And I thought about this this morning. I wonder how many Philistines' parents walked by and said, kids, don't go past that rock. Let me tell you about the day the Lord thundered before us. And here's what I want to challenge us as a church. I want to challenge you as an individual. Do you have those Ebenezer's raised up in your life? 
Do you have points and memorials where you can look back and say, this is what God did. This is how God helped me. Because I think it's those moments, those things that we raise up in our life where we celebrate his wins, we celebrate his victories that gives us the courage, that gives us the strength to continue praying and fighting those battles. To continue that mindset of, Lord, I'm going to continue pursuing you. I'm going to continue confessing, repenting, and changing my lifestyle because I know what happened when you did. I saw the victory that you gave me. You did it. I want to celebrate that. I want to encourage us to be a church that celebrates these, these things. We got to celebrate it last week with Steve and Janine and some of our kids here at River Rock Bible Church. One of the Ebenezers that we have is uh, baptism, where we, we remember what the Lord has done for us. One of the other ones is communion. But I, I hope that we become a church and a culture that celebrates these stories. I want to encourage you this week, think about the victories that God has given you. Big or small, let me tell you, there is no small victory when it comes to spiritual growth. There's no small victory. You may think it's small, but I want to encourage you to share that with someone. Share it in your small group, share it here on a Sunday morning. Even if you're just getting coffee, say, hey, let me tell you what God did. Let's celebrate what God did. I prayed for this and he answered. Let's celebrate that together. My desire for us at River Rock Bible Church is that we would be people of prayer, that we would pray by faith, that we would approach the Lord continually with repentance, confession, knowing, according to 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we seek him. It's okay when we face those moments of doubt. We can expect that we're going to be attacked. But when the Lord brings us through victorious, let's raise up the monument. Let's raise up a banner to our Lord and say, God has helped us. God has helped us. May that be the encouragement and the strength that we need to continue fighting the fight, that we would be strengthened and not wearied by our battles. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the story in 1 Samuel. We thank you for the deliverance of your people, and we thank you that ultimately you have delivered us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd be with us this week, Lord, that we would continually come before you confessing our sins, repenting, God, and and that you would empower us to make the changes in our lives necessary. And as we see those victories, Lord, would we celebrate those together? Would we celebrate what you are doing in our lives? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As our ushers prepare-